0: There's no doubt that when Jason Warner joined the team at GitHub, he would have a lot of questions to answer. GitHub was trying to find its footing in a development industry dominated by the Googles of the world. And as SVP of technology, Jason was the man looking to rebuild trust and vision within the company. Jason succeeded. And on this episode of IT Visionaries, he explains how. Plus, he dives into what a good employee experience looks like, how developers will evolve over the next decade, and why having a distributed team is the way to go in today's world. Enjoy the conversation. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by Salesforce. Did you know that Salesforce isn't just for sales? Using Salesforce as an employee experience platform helps make every employee across your organization more productive thanks to a common mobile first platform for getting work done faster. Find out more at Salesforce.com/slash employee experience.
1: Hey everyone, this is Ian. You might have noticed that this episode is released on Tuesday instead of on Wednesday. That is because we are switching the scheduling of IT Visionaries to include a fun new segment called Trailblazer Tuesdays, where we interview a trailblazing IT leader just for a little bit at the end of the episode. You can hear it at the end, but first, let's get into our interview. Welcome to another episode of IT Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at Mission.org. And we have Jason. What's going on? Hey
2: everybody. How are you doing?
1: It's a great day. Um, are, you, are you in San Francisco today? I am. I am here for the week. Wonderful. Um, well, you we were talking before this about how you've been all over in Australia and Canada and New Zealand. So um, it seems like you could be anywhere at any time. I,
2: uh, I, see, I seem to move around a little bit. So within the last 15 or so years, I've, I've moved, uh, moved around. Um, Seattle's home these days, though, and uh, it should continue to be for some time.
1: So we are going to get into a ton of what you're working on at GitHub. Talk about what it was like when you got there, what it was like back in the day at Heroku. But first, how did you get into technology in the first place?
2: So tech uh, was not the path I thought I was on. And um, I had no idea that tech even really existed when I was in high school. But what happened was I was living in a town and I just moved to a freshman year of high school. By sophomore, junior year, I realized that a lot of people around me were into this computer thing. This was in the early 90s. And then no joke about this one in shop class, the teacher said I should apply to this internship, this co-op program that IBM was running. So IBM had a uh, presence in the town and for tax reasons, they were taking high school co-ops and interns. And I went through the process. I applied begrudgingly thinking there's no way I'm going to get this anyway, but it was better than working at McDonald's, which is what I was doing at the time. And um, they said, we're, you, you're exactly the type of person we want to take this job. You. you Don't even have a computer or, you know, most people we're seeing that are applying for this, have a car, a computer, whatever. I mean, this was a pretty affluent town that we had moved to. No, we want want you to be here. So I joined IBM as a high school co-op, mostly carrying printers and computers around the building. I had to wear a tie to do that, which was very strange, but that was IBM in the 90s. Uh, and my God, I did it. And then I figured out how to stop carrying computers and how to start programming them pretty quickly. And then at one point they said, Hey, we love what you do. We love your mindset. We love your attitude. If you get a computer science degree, we will guarantee you a job when you graduate. And I said, sure. What's computer science. I thought it was Excel and word. So that literally is how I fell into it. And then I realized that computer science was basically math. I was really good at math and physics. Um, I didn't have to memorize a lot of stuff. I could figure it all out. All of a sudden, things started to click.
1: I, love, I didn't have to I didn't have to memorize a bunch of stuff. It. See, I mean, I feel like now we're pretty clearly on the path that uh, memorizing a bunch of stuff in school probably isn't the most beneficial thing when we have the world's information at our fingertips at all times.
2: What do all our math teachers tell us when you're younger? You're not going to carry a computer around with you all the time, or a calculator, I mean. Next thing you know, we've got a... Computer in our pocket.
1: Yeah. Um, so early in those days, were you working in IT? What, like, what was the what was the role like?
2: I, I was. I started out in IT. Um, I did. Um, I said I was carrying computers. I went to send, setting them up. Um, then in, that went to network administration. It was IBM back in the day. I mean, way back in the day when token ring was still in question of whether or not I was going to win out over Ethernet as the dominant. Protocol. Crazy. And um, I just started doing administration, mostly Lotus Notes um, at the time. Um, and then I started programming Lotus uh, Notes, and that led to more uh, back end programming on some of the mainframes that they had. And, you know, um, my view of almost everything I have ever done um, and did at the time was automate things as quickly as possible because I don't like to memorize things. As I just even said, I don't want to remember how to do things, I want things to be done. Uh, once I figure out how to do them, so I basically went from you know IT setting things up to um, programming some systems to make sure things were more efficient. And next thing you know, the entire site that I was at as a high school co-op was running off of one of the uh, Lotus Notes programs that I ran for, uh, created for administration. So that was kind of fun.
1: So, flash forward to today, what is the scope of your responsibilities as SVP and CTO of GitHub? So, um. I'm in charge of all of software development
2: and security at GitHub um, as well as um, long term kind of strategic and visionary thinking. It's um if you think about what that means, it's largely over long time horizons where we need to go where we want to take GitHub and software in general and then mapping it back to how we're going to do that.
1: So how much of that is focused, like you know working with customers versus you know working on like employee experience? Versus just like heads down building product.
2: There's a, there's a
1: good mix and it kind of ebbs and flows with percentage of time I would spend on any one of those things
2: based upon where we are in some sort of a cycle, whether it be the yearly or the quarterly. Um, I spend a lot of time with customers um, talking about what their needs are, what their challenges are, kind of ver- both verifying what uh, you see in the market or what you expect to see in the market, as well as just true customer empathy and making sure that you understand how, what customers' pain points are. Um, Heads-down building product is always a core function, um, though with the size and scale and scope of GitHub, I don't write lines of code anymore um, for production, though I do make sure that things are happening on the right timescales with the right people um, and you know the, the right judgments and tastes of things are happening. Um, employee experience is always a concern for any leader or should be for any leader in the company. And I don't mean typically like what kind of drinks we have in the fridge or any of those things. You can't, you, you want to know that employees feel that they can come here and do their best work. Uh, that's how I think of it. You're removing, removing things from the system that stop that, um, adding things to the system that help it making sure that people understand uh, where work should also sit in their life or what our, our company's view of where work should sit in their life is. You know, that's a pretty hot topic. It feels like these days where some companies are all in on the, uh, we can be everything for you. And some companies are kind of going the other way, which is like, you know, work is an aspect of, uh, of your life, but trying to find that where we are on that spectrum too.
1: Yeah. And share, you know, for our listeners who might not know, um, Kind of what was your background with why you decided to come to GitHub in the first place, kind of like where the company was at and then, you know, to where it is now? Sure.
2: So I've been at Heroku for about three years running engineering and um, I'd come into Heroku post-acquisition by Salesforce. Uh, And Heroku was basically in need of um, some, some organizational design, trying to figure out what it wanted to do in the world, what it was going to achieve. Um, they had already brought in their first real round of professional management. Um, people who have been in the industry for a little while trying to find pathways to to larger revenue multiples and, you know, broader product portfolio, pretty classic um, story. You know, I had been doing that for three years. Uh, San Francisco tech had started to figure out who I was uh, in particular, the uh, BC community. And I joined GitHub in 2017. And I think right around that time, the uh, fair view of the world is everyone is looking at GitHub saying, what is one going on at GitHub and two, what is it going to do? We, it doesn't look like it's got an opinion in the world and it's, it hasn't really released software in quite some time. Uh, the investors felt similarly. They were trying to figure out what to do with it. And um, I had a very strong opinion on that as well since Heroku and GitHub are basically sister companies started right around the same time with the same sets of people or types of people working in the same domain. Uh, And my view, my thesis for joining GitHub was there were essentially four companies in the world at that time that could fundamentally change the entirety of the industry of software. Um, That was Amazon, Microsoft, Google, and GitHub. One of them didn't look like the other ones, and one of them was in a very different market position to do that and affect that change. So of course, from an opportunity perspective, I was going to join GitHub. Um, Obviously, there was some risk involved given its history with executives and leadership positions. But you know, if you could figure out what to do with GitHub, I mean, as one of my friends said, if you could figure out what to do with GitHub, and you're a legend in the industry. So you know, I joined right around when it was uh, just about a two billion dollar valuation, and on my one year anniversary to the day, we announced the acquisition by Microsoft.
1: That's so crazy. So what was the what was the secret? What's the uh, well? I guess you can't share the secret, but um, what were some of the things well, that I can. Yeah,
2: generically, it's it's actually really straightforward. It's going to sound cliched, but you have to form an opinion about where you're going to go, what you're going to do. So, mission and vision. It helps to be right in that, but um, you you need one. You need a mission and vision. Then you got to set out and execute on it. Uh, either do it or show strong signal that you're going to do it. You have to have some confidence that you know your market position. This was. One of the things that was most important in the early sets of negotiations um, from a partner perspective with the large clouds and some very large vendors, which was I know what our value in the world is because I know what we can and can't do and what we should and shouldn't do. And once everyone figured out that you had a clue, people understood the game that was at play and then just execute on it, put the right people in the right place, make bets on people to do certain things help them understand what that looks like, hold them to a standard, achieve that, and uh, make good choices with people and product and money. And uh, it it sounds cliche that it's super simple, but it really is.
1: Yeah. I mean, were there things that you kind of did in those first 90 days? We talk about the first 90 days a lot on the show of you know, when a CTO or CIO comes into the role that you're like, hey, I need to make sure that this is one of the things that I accomplish or one of the things that I, I clearly yeah. need to do to show senior leadership and the board um, that, that this is going to be a priority or something like that? Absolutely. And a couple of things were at play, this one too, which
2: was, you have had a history of blowing um, through senior execs. Mm-hmm. So the employees in the company were super skeptical that I would even survive a year. The other is there was no real long-term mission and vision. It was wasn't articu- If there was, it wasn't articulated well. No one could really understand it. And um, two, you have to marry all of those things together to show that you've got confidence to achieve it. Everyone there's there. Everyone could talk about ideas, um, and frankly, none of the ones I feel like I wanted to do at GitHub were rather unique. But you have to show that you've got the skill to enact them. So my first ninety days at GitHub, I have a notebook. That's, uh, with a bunch of GitHub stickers on it. And my, that's my, all my notes going into GitHub about what I wanted to achieve. And I go back and review it just to make sure that, you know, in retrospect, how close was I? And it held true, mostly, except I wanted to get an acquisition offer in my second year, June of 2019. I wanted to get an acquisition offer. So we did it one year ahead of time. But my first 90 days were all about building trust with every single person in the organization that I could get to. Figuring out where trust had eroded so that you can start the ledger, at least even, but not from a deficit particularly. So that means with the board, with senior leadership, with the the partner organizations, with ICs, with teams, with key uh, um, uh, employees in the company that have have long tenure, figuring out where the hidden power structures are, if there are any, figuring out who has direct line of, direct access to the CEO and shouldn't or, um, and can influence them for whatever reason. I had to do all of those things, which was a lot of work before I could
1: really do the job of the CTO. So when you're going through kind of that process, um, one of the things that you kind of seem like you unlocked was the valuation kind of changing, you know, drastically. And you mentioned positioning a little bit, but I'm curious to see what do you think was the like the underlying value that other folks weren't seeing because it's clear that you saw something that was there that a lot of other people didn't see and then by the end of that then people did see that that it was there what what was what
2: was that i think it would be i uh, will i'll talk about is what i saw and then perhaps this is, might be where the gap is but I think we can see it today in people who proclaim to be a certain thing as well uh, when i say people i mean companies that claim to be a certain thing maybe the lack of understanding But my perspective, given where my history is, so GitHub now, Heroku, and then Canonical, I'm I'm open source, I'm developers, and I'm platforms and clouds through and through. That's what I do. That's what I know. And I happen to know a lot about um, developers because I am one. Um, Also I take a strong view that developers are where a lot of the value is created in the organizations. Um, I have a strong view that the next 20 to 40, 40 years of the highest value com- uh, companies in the world should be looking at their EVPs, SVPs of engineering as the next CEOs. I don't mean someone with a technical background, I mean those folks, because realistically, they're the ones um, who understand where the world is going. Yeah. And what, for me, I think was maybe the difference between what some songs, uh, others might not have, is uh, I feel like I really understand the big picture the macro trends of where things are going. Um, and I don't mean even two, three, um, four, five years, I mean, you know, decade long type of things that are happening. And um, if you just look at economics of the industry, all of a sudden, and you start to play out some long time horizons in the economics and some of the macro trends, um, it's pretty clear, I think, what you should be building and who, what customers you should be catering to. Um, you know, and one of the things that I think I'm most fascinated by is the fact that it took the GitHub acquisition by Microsoft to unlock developer tools as being a, a hot VC vector category. Yeah. When all the VCs should know that developers and developer tools, theoretically, in the next 10 to 20 years, should be one of the hottest categories to be investing in.
1: Yeah, it it, it is pretty funny, right? Um, we we as a company mission, we were talking to, to GitHub um, probably right around the time or right before maybe you got there. I remember talking to folks at the company and just being like, this seems like it is the very, very beginning of this kind of evolution, right? It's like it seemed like it was still so new, especially like outside the, uh, outside the valley where you'd go other places and it was still kind of like the idea of um, you know people talking about it, going to like hackathons and stuff like that and people talking about GitHub but outside of that it just wasn't kind of like i felt mainstream do you kind of feel like it's still like where do you think the industry is going where do you you do you still kind of feel like we're in in um, the nascency
2: I, I i absolutely do i i feel that um you know had we not taken the acquisition offer my share i feel like i probably could have doubled the valuation again um, <laughs> um my my view is is twofold on this one one I think someone like GitHub, but GitHub in particular, given its market position, what we plan to do over the next couple of years, should be the most important software company in the world. Um, Currently, I would project that it is still the most important software company in the world, but it should be one of the most valuable, important, um, influential in the world. And, you know, time horizons approaching 20 years from now. I think we'll look back on that. If we do our jobs well here um, and Microsoft's a good steward of it, it would be a no-brainer. And I think that's what Andreessen and Sequoia saw when they invested in originally. Yeah, you Now playing it out over the time horizon, again, of 10 to 20 years, I mean, we're gonna see new categories pop up and we're gonna see workflow style stuff that we're doing at GitHub and developer tools type things that we're doing at GitHub becoming the norm in the future. And those will be the base level. And then we'll find some sort of um, next phase, likely around automation, likely around robots uh, or things acting for us on our behalf with intelligence behind the scenes. But yeah, the entire category is, is set to explode still.
1: What about people who aren't developers? Like I always think, you know, like young Jason uh, sitting there, like, I don't know, computers very well. Um, Young Ian was the same way, right? Like, yeah, I was doing some coding and stuff, but I wasn't serious about it by any stretch. Um, I'm curious of like, all of the people who are outside of the developer community, they kind of just look from afar. You're seeing, you know, some of the code boot camps and things like that. And obviously like Lambda school and places that are really aligning incentives. Um, but I'm curious, like for the average folks, for the citizen developers, for the folks that are not necessarily building yet, like what is, what is the future look like for those people?
2: I think, um, the way I categorize, um, our current thinking around this um, to, to folks that ask is I say, if you care about software, GitHub should be a place for you right now. Just even if you just care about it, you happen to be interested in what's going on um, or you're working for you know you're a project manager, product manager, designer, GitHub should be a home for you um, and we should have some functionality and we should have some workflows that, that matter to you. Now, we don't answer all of those questions at the moment. We have gaps on certain things, but that's kind of how we think about it. Um, I think one of my personal interests, um, and I think it would influence how we think about GitHub long-term as well, but if, we, if it doesn't, um, it's the personal interest of mine. It'll be something that I'm looking to do eventually as well, is the zero to one and the one to two aspect of software. Yeah, It's making somebody a software developer and then making them a better software developer. And uh, I think that GitHub can play a role in that, but you know, taking it past just the GitHub notion of this, that is something that's gonna happen pretty, pretty quickly here. And it could you can see the glide path of it. You could you can have these cute scratch games that teach someone to type. Then you can teach someone to type um, and then use the scratch title things that show them logic flow, combine the two of those into, you know, a QT game sort of system. next thing you know, you got a 13 year old making some programs that are fun you can use a similar system to teach a JavaScript developer Go or a Go developer JavaScript and make them a better developer or show them, analyze their code on GitHub and show them how they can improve or where they have some things that you know are not industry standard because you're able to analyze all the repos out there in the world. There's a lot of ways in which we can do that sort of stuff. Um, and I think that there will be a thing that happens. And it won't be. I, I don't believe it's going to end up being boot camps. Um, or those things, because those are still, that's an older way of thinking about teaching someone a thing. It's still more new than universities, but it's still, we need to show you how to do this with a person to person, interaction. That's not how the software works. That's not how the industry works. Someone's going to move past that too.
1: Yeah. You know, one of the things we, we talked to, uh, Sudhir from BMC software and he, we were talking about citizen developers, uh, gosh, this was back like probably 50 episodes ago, but, um. It, it was one of these things where the first time that they, and this was on um, on Salesforce platform, who's the sponsor of the show, and we love them, uh, but it, it was a really interesting thing that he was saying that when they rolled it out, they had like you know, I forget how many people in their IT org, but they just essentially have like stuff that needs to be done all the time, right? And uh, they did a kind of like pseudo hackathon and just let people just like try to finish something in a day, you know, like shut down their workstation, like. You know, just try to build an app in a day, and it was like they're just blown away at how many people could just do that in a day, right? With like essentially, you know, limited coding. And I love how you said, you know, zero to one to one to two, because that's kind of the way that I've always thought about this. Um, so I'll steal your analogy. I'll credit you though. Uh, where <laughs> you like once you once you get from I've never built an app to I've built an app, that's a pretty huge mental mind shift, right? You're like, wow, I've actually built something, um, that, you know, is like, helps streamline our, our whatever finance processes or whatever it is. Like I actually built something for the business that like, you know, everyone at our company could use. It's a pretty crazy feeling. Um, but then it's like, you know, if that's something that they want to keep pursuing, then they can create a bunch more stuff. If not, then it's like, you know, you, you you take the red pill and you go back into the matrix or whatever. But um, I, I just think that there's so much value in just like getting people on one project to do one thing and just like, hey, is this for you? One of the things I think about, um, again, for personal things uh, quite
2: a bit is, where do the next 50 million up to 100 million developers come from? And if you look around the industry, I mean, how many people... Um, would benefit from what is now called low code or no code scenarios. And we categorize them as developers and help them go from that to maybe more sophisticated development if they want to. I mean, even look at how many people, if you've ever watched a YouTube video and I've done this, I, I, I will admit to doing this, but go watch a YouTube video of some Excel wizards yeah. who are able to manipulate Excel. It's, it's fascinating. And you know the industry doesn't call those folks developers, and there's a very specific idea and notion of what a developer is. But those folks are are manipulating
1: inputs and outputs and systems. Oh no, you're you're exactly right. This is like not to jump on your point, but like this is exactly right. Is the, these are the in that in the BMC software example, that's exactly what they were doing. They were like they were just taking IT people who were doing IT stuff, or they were taking you know people, yeah, Excel wizards or, or things like that. Um, and just being like, hey, if you can do this, uh, you can probably do this.
2: It, I think if people would be shocked to know how many large businesses still essentially run on Excel
1: spreadsheets on people's machines. Oh, yeah. 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 No, absolutely. And and I think, you know, it's one of those uh, scenarios where if you're writing like if-then statements in Excel, like you're 50% of the way there. <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: Absolutely. I mean, here I am running technology at the world's what I will contend is the world's most important software company. And I started out writing Lotus notes and macros. Yeah. And I have a very non-traditional path to, to software
1: into the tech industry in general. So, I mean, yeah, so you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, no, totally. I, I mean, but I, I do want to talk about that a little bit. I mean, were there times that you kind of felt like you didn't belong or that imposter syndrome? Um, I, tr- I, I openly talk about this. Um, I tried to quit tech twice. I had some terrible managers.
2: Um, I think there's a, there's a real, real lack of leadership in technology. I think every industry kind of lacks good leaders and uh, prop them up for whatever reason. The reason I didn't quit just to be brutally transparent is the money's too good. Yeah, And you will agree to put up with uh, stuff because you want to feed your family and all of those things. But the second time my wife uh, said to me something um, important, which was, you're now starting to be in a position where you could make other people's lives better. Um, you're able to do that if you can take whatever is happening to you at work from that person. You could affect the change and make other people better. It's the thing you have always wanted when you were younger and starting to be that person. So what I've told people is that um, why I'm still in tech and why I continue to to be in tech and why I will be in tech is that I want to show that there is an an alternate way to be successful. My main goal is that I want to have the most success I possibly can being the leader that I am and showing that you can take an approach that is thoughtful, measured, steady, and with human centered when it comes to being empathetic and working with people and still have a massive success so that we as an industry stop emulating the, the the Larry Ellison's or the Steve Jobs of the world and, and portraying their brutal uh, way of working as the only way you can achieve results. Yeah. And it's one of the reasons why I am so interested in Satya's story because he's one of the few maybe if not the only who appears to be that way at the top of Microsoft and I've met him a couple of times and he is a genuine human being and is able to achieve those results so he might be the first vanguard in this. And
1: that's why I'm still doing the job. I want to talk a little bit about developers in general. So I would say, I'm curious to what you would say. You think that the developer ecosystem, like where does that currently and what, what do you think developers need? Because I think so many companies are focusing right now on building developer ecosystems and they are, an extremely important ecosystem for a lot of companies, Um, you know, arguably the most, they're definitely the most expensive. So uh, all the talent acquisition people definitely want to build those. Um, But I'm curious, like, what do you think developers need in the future?
2: Um, So I think there's a couple of things at play here, and this comes down to um, needs and wants and strategy and trying to maybe force something into the world that doesn't naturally exist at the moment too. But there's a couple of things that I want to add some context to before I answer the question, which is almost everybody in the world wants to be a platform and build an ecosystem now. And the reason why is because that's where all the value is. Though you can't, in my opinion, build a platform without a compelling product first. You have to actually have product success, particularly if you have viral product success, you can can do this uh, and then build a platform which extends itself into the ecosystem. But everyone wants to get to the ecosystem because there's such value that's there. Salesforce has proved this. GitHub has proved this. Um, but you have to do that. Now I see ecosystems popping up and platforms popping up for platform and ecosystem sakes. And I don't, I'm very skeptical that those will work. Um, one or two might, but they would be outliers in my opinion. But what I see is what developers tend to need is um, if you go back to it, it's why they, get, they got in the game in the first place. Most of them were there to solve a problem or to build a thing. They're, they're, you know, if you, roughly say that at various ends of the spectrum, there's two types of developers in the world. There's there, there's the ones that are there because they like fiddling with the bits and seeing how things work and you know all the puzzle pieces put together. And then there's people who are there to achieve an objective and build a thing. And both of them are not there to string hundreds of thousands of lines of YAML together and look at all this stuff in production. So what I typically say you want to do for developers is you want to get them back to doing whichever end of the spectrum they are drawn to. And usually that involves automation, that involves a lot of workflows, that involves taking pain away from the day-to-day. And you know, I think that we as an industry, just like they continue to in- introduce complexity. We do have better abstractions all the time. We have a lot more value that we can um, build upon public clouds, uh, open source, all of those. But each time we do one of those, we actually seem to add a little bit more complexity and fragility to the systems. So I think we need to add some more stability to those and the systems um, and the cohesion between those systems, as well as getting developers back to what they like to do.
1: What about um, the fact that so many people now are remote and distributed or, and, and this is just a trend that's going to continue, right? So we know that this is going to continue. If you're not, if you're not a
2: distributed software company right now, you are 10 years behind the curve. Yeah, exactly.
1: So um With all of this, the fact that you can just send someone your entire portfolio of work rather than send a resume, which is like really a fundamental shift. Like, I mean, I don't think we even talk about it enough. How much, you know, it's you don't need to even have a resume anymore because you have a LinkedIn profile. So, you know, from that perspective, your profile or your your resume is just all the time out now. And now it's about showing your work and especially proving that you can do your work in a distributed fashion uh, with potentially limited oversight. I, I guess, how do you do that at GitHub with your team? But also, um, like, what would be your, your thoughts on the future of that?
2: Uh, sure. So the ironic thing is that if you understand that the habits that are formed by being a distributed company and being a good distributed company and the skills, habits, and practices and processes that you need to do that, are only going to make you a better company if you're a co-located company you would automatically act like you're a distributed company anyway because would, you would be a better co-located company it's just the way that works yep um so how we do it is it's pretty simple uh it, it's there's some systems in place and you've got to write things down and you've got to have some good habits about you know pretty basic hygiene uh company and corporate hygiene type things but going back to the story at github a lot of what it takes to be distributed starts with what yeah, was lacking in the first place, which was mission and vision, um, strategy and purpose, how we're going to do it, uh, how we're going to measure it, and when we're going to measure it, and what that process looks like. So I, I, I talk about the calendar quite a bit because it's a well-known construct, but what are we doing as a company every year, every half year, every quarter, every month, every week, every day, every minute? If you map those around and you understand what those things do and how you're going to do those things and what, you're, what those activities will look like, all of a sudden, 90% of the things in the company snap into place. Hey, we're going to have yearly planning uh, from an uh, objective perspective. So we understand what we're doing and why we're going to do it. We're going to measure ourselves on the quarter and kind of map out how we're going to achieve the year on the quarter. Uh, we're going to do hack weeks every um, quarter, or every six months. And then we're going to do fix it weeks here. And then we're going to do that type of stuff. You start to map it out, all of a sudden, things get taken care of. You write it down, you give people a spot where they can go to async, you record uh, important meetings so people can read or watch them at uh, 2 o'clock in the morning, their time when they wake up and they can't sleep or whatever. Kind of basic stuff. Um, Most companies do a lot of this stuff anyway, but they may not do it well. Um, You Just as a distributed company, if you do it well, um, it unlocks so many other things. But to answer your other question, too, the future of this, I mean, I I don't think it's the future. I think it's the current. I think all forward-thinking companies are distributed. And the ironic part is even the non-forward-thinking companies that don't think they're distributed are distributed. Um, If you're two floors up from somebody, you usually usually jump on a call or a video for a meeting instead of going up to see them. Pretty distributed all of a sudden pretty quickly. The difference is whether or not you have to fly in for uh, any face-to-face meeting. But even more, the I find the irony in all this is that so many companies are trying to make software for developers who are distributed, who that company themselves is not distributed. Yeah, that's a good um, point. And we've seen a couple of, we saw an IPO here recently, or I should say a direct listing recently, um, where they're a non-distributed company and they have policies against it. And I find that incredibly ironic um, and kind of sad because... Uh, you you've got to figure out what your customers are actually doing, and you have to have that customer empathy. And if you don't live it every day,
1: you don't really understand it. I uh, you know we we kind of subscribe to the the theory here at Mission of um, if you have one person that's distributed, then it's like everything has to be that way, right? Because it's like otherwise, you know, like if you're not all on the the video conference together, then um, it's. Super weird to have, you know, the one person who's just floating in the ether and everybody else is is kind of around. It's just like it doesn't really make sense. I mean, you know, I think the employee experience stuff is is one of the biggest thing that that's gonna change. I just I think that how people work, we we've seen it, you know, with um Jason Fried's book about, you know, remote and all that, all that stuff kind of started being like, hey, maybe we could start thinking about this differently. But but I think companies are going to think of new innovative ways to do work in their own ways. And there's kind of not really that many models yet of that. There's like a couple, but not really that many. And I think that that's super exciting.
2: I mentioned before, and I said it almost inflammatory style, but if you're not distributed um, right now, you're about 10 years behind the curve. I, I do genuinely believe that, um, most companies are not forward-thinking. I mean, the, the law of averages and bell curve, we all know those things. It just happens to be. But the truth is that it's because it's easier to not be. It's the default. And, and right now, the default is not to be distributed. It may be in the current class of startup companies that are under 10 people because that's just the way that the world's working. But the macro trends of this are that if you're not thinking about this right now, you're, you're not going to understand what's about to happen to you. Talent is not going to be geolocated exclusively in the world. And we all know that the next 100 million developers that are popping up are not going to be in San Francisco. Um, there will always be a class of people that want to come and work in San Francisco. But if you go from uh, 30 million developers in, in the world to 100 million, how many of those are going to be in San Francisco?
1: Yeah, but that I love that thinking because that's that's the thing that is always like the exponential thinking versus incremental that I I, I wanted to circle back to. So I'm glad you brought it up. That is the question, right? It's how do we get to 100 million more developers? There's what I think 36 million uh, on on 30, GitHub. Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, on GitHub right now. So you know, two over two two million businesses, but but 36 million developers on GitHub right now. The question is, how do you make 100 million more developers in general? And that's a huge problem that requires a huge solution. Uh, and it can't be done kind of incrementally, one cohort as a t- at a time. You know.
2: Yeah, it, so at a scale problem, we've got to give people better ways uh, of self-directed learning. Yeah, in my opinion, um, and then that's why I don't think boot camps are going to be the answer. Uh, I think boot camps could be a almost like the last mile solution to some of these things, but you've got to find a way to get people going from I've never touched a keyboard to now I can do something pretty quickly. Tight feedback loops, all those sorts of things. I was skeptical at first, but I have turned out to be a big fan of like what Salesforce had done with Trailhead. Um, Twilio Quest as a learning platform for Twilio. Uh, GitHub Learning Lab is another that um, there. So systems like that are going to have to pop up. Um, I've, I personally angel invested in several of those because that's where my personal interest lies. But I think it's going to be systems like that.
1: I, that. It's a great point about, about those kind of things because I think the, the trap that a lot of people fall in is like, well, I wouldn't do that. Right. You know, if Ian wouldn't go, you know, do some gamified system because like, I'm just going to want to do something else. I I think about this with starting companies all the time. I I think Shark Tank is like one of the best things for our country because it showed so many people, even though it's highly produced, overproduced, some might say, um, and, and kind of like a, you know, hero worship kind of stuff. It just showed people that like you can physically go do stuff And you just got to kind of get started. And then it's like, oh, you can be an entrepreneur. I I just think that like that, that type of moment needs to happen for, you know, the wake up moment for, uh, for America around like software development. And I kind of feel like we all think that it's happened, but it really hasn't happened. Like, you know, we see kind of that stuff, but at, to your point earlier, those people are all superheroes. Like we don't think we have the superpowers of Zuck. Like we don't think that. So if there's so much between, you know, the developer, the the crazy developer to just, you know, the person who's just hanging out, doing whatever, working at, uh, working at Target, like people would be surprised. There isn't that many steps in between, but you just kind of have to go do the work.
2: Uh, the I think you nailed that one, which is we kind of idolize some of these folks. But if you realize that, I mean, every, at the end of the day, everyone is just a person. We have the same basic wants and needs and desires and um, challenges out of life. Um, And obviously there's extreme ends of the spectrum um, both ways. But, you know, it dawned on me early in my career when I saw a product that was basically someone had to go in and hit the reset button on this thing every 30 minutes to get this thing out. And it was, you know, the the product line had this huge revenue stream. And I was like, I, I don't understand how this could possibly be. And then you realize that, how much of the industry can be put together with band-aids, essentially and bailing wire and bubble gum and all that, But you know that's how you run businesses. But everyone who in this industry idolizes has made some terrible decisions and that and also made some great ones um, and has had extreme luck, but also some hardships too. And my view, stop idolizing um, folks like that and just understand, uh, including you know if anyone out there is even thinking about this view with me. I'm, are you kidding me? I wake up in the middle of the night all the time thinking, Oh shit, I screwed that up really hard yesterday. Um, all of people do that. It's more about consistency, show up every day, learn a little bit, do it every single day. It's the, it's the fitness analogy. No one got fit overnight. You don't get unfit overnight either. You've got to put in the time. You got to put in the effort. You got to put in the energy, but you got to do it consistently over a long period of time.
1: Yeah. I mean, I would, I would, I think that the word choice is the important point there. Like, I don't think people should idolize these people because I don't think that, you know, they're idols necessarily. I think that they should just view it as like this new wave of like digital mentors or something like that. Um, Because, you know, back in the day, we just read people's books, you know, if they wrote one. But now you can really see like, oh, if I want to follow Jason's path, like I know my path is going to be different, but... Jason did X, Y, or Z and was open to opportunities. You know, we recently had um, the CTSO, uh, Corey Louie on, who was the CISO of the White House, an amazing guy. He was a Secret Service agent. Like, he went from that to being, you know, a CISO and, and CTSO uh, at Checker. Like, there's no kind of one path. I think that's one of the things that we try to talk about on the show. But but you you do, at the end of the day, all of those people are spending, you know, seven hours a day coding for a period of time in their life uh, or doing whatever deep work that they're doing that gets you to that point, right? Like there's no way around the work. And that's what I think uh, you can get started really fast. And then if you have the the dedication to keep, stick with it, like you'll find your path. That's right. I agree with that. Jason, this has been absolutely awesome having you on the show. We got to have you back. Uh, this has been extremely enlightening. I love your view of the future. I love the 10 year time horizons. Uh, any final stuff to plug? Uh, anything, any shout outs? Uh, no, I think I'm just, uh, I'm happy to be here with you all. Um, looking forward to coming back. Well, it was fun. I love
2: love talking about this, talking about the future, talking about developers. I guess maybe the one plug uh, since, you know, they do pay the bills for me still is if you don't have a GitHub account, I encourage you to go check out what we're doing.
1: Yeah, and if you don't, just, it's it's free. Just go get it's one.
2: Free. It's free. We did that just recently.
1: It's awesome. There you go. Boom. Uh, check it out if you don't have one. Jason, thanks again. Thank you for having me. Thank you again for listening. And now here is Dragana Boras from the Salesforce platform team with our Trailblazer Tuesday segment.
3: Thanks, Ian. Hi, everyone. I'm Dragana Boras with the Salesforce platform team. So excited to kick off our first ever Trailblazer Tuesday. This is a brand new segment that is all about featuring amazing Trailblazers who have turned their visionary ideas into reality with Salesforce. Speaking of amazing Trailblazers, we have Susanna Saint-Germain joining us as the first ever Trailblazer on this Trailblazer Tuesday for IT Visionaries.
4: Hi, thank you so much for having me, Dragona.
3: Thanks for joining us. Super excited to have you on board. So Uh, I'd love to hear you a little more, Susanna, about your story and your current role and all the exciting things you're working on.
4: Absolutely. So I am currently a technical architect at Boston Scientific, a global medical devices company that helps to enable the treatment of nearly 30 million patients each year uh, across 130 countries. So as you can imagine, we have a pretty large enterprise implementation of Salesforce. I work with around 140 Salesforce practitioners on our team, and we together support nearly 30 project teams. Wow. That's
3: definitely a huge deployment. Susanna, when you joined Boston Scientific, and I know you work on a lot of different projects, but there was one specific one where you saw an opportunity to not just improve the employee experience, but to also help shorten the sales lifecycle and in turn make the overall customer experience better. How does one come up with this idea?
4: The app that you're talking about is uh, the Price Change Request app. It was developed for our teams in Latin America. and. The idea of it was truly inspired by our sales teams in the field. They had been using Salesforce as a CRM platform for a while, and they saw a lot of power in it. But after a while, they came to me and and asked if there was a way that Salesforce could help make their work with what they called the price change request easier. I do love talking about this story because I think that the best types of solutions come out of solving a problem that's truly raised by the business and is core to the folks in the field who are are doing the work every day instead of what happens sometimes in IT where there's a new technology project or a new shiny tool that is then implemented by IT and scaled down to the business.
3: Amazing. So it's more like let's avoid that build it, they will come philosophy and let's focus on using our field teams as like the pulse to let us know what the true needs of the customer are. Exactly. So what did this implementation look like? How were you able to make this happen? Because tackling just one side of the coin is hard, but you went for improving customer experience all the while automating processes for your internal teams.
4: So Boston Scientific is a large company, and sometimes it can be hard to make change in these really, really large shops. My approach has been to try to take on very specific types of projects when I can. I remember hearing a venture capitalist talk about how they chose which startups to fund and how they found that the ROI on business that focused on a solution was the best when that solution had uh, low risk, but also infinite potential to scale. I think that applies really nicely to how I approached this particular app. We were really starting with a small pilot group and that group had a process that was working slowly, but it was working. And we truly didn't have a ton of corporate pressure or corporate focus on this particular problem, but there was so much opportunity. So if we could get a solution right for this particular problem, which actually arose in our Brazil sales team, there was a huge opportunity to scale both in Brazil and beyond with a relatively low risk.
3: I love it. So start small and then build from there so you can really understand the process before spreading it out to a larger audience.
4: The results have been great. The process of the price change request used to take internally anywhere between two and three weeks. And now it's down to days, if not minutes. So hugely successful. You know, like I said, we initially piloted this app in Brazil and we're now currently in the process of rolling it out to Colombia, Mexico, Puerto Rico, and other countries in Latin America.
3: That's super exciting to hear.
4: Susanna, thank you for taking the
3: time to hang out with us. Hopefully we can have you on for a full episode soon and hear even more about this. But I'd love to see if you have any advice for other trailblazing visionaries like yourself
4: my biggest piece of advice would be to always keep learning. Technology is moving so fast right now that your ability to learn is just as important, if not more important than what you know right now at this moment. But when you're actually implementing things for your business or even when you're just trying to solve a complex problem and, you know, stick to what you know is a good, scalable solution and always reach for the thing that you know is simple simple is best great thanks so much susanna
1: thank you again to all of our it visionaries listeners if you ever have a question for us or want to reach out you can just email info at mission.org that's info at mission.org and we can answer your questions we can reach out to past guests we can you know, book future guests, all that fun stuff. Thank you so much for listening and let us know how we can help you out. Take care.
0: Thanks again to our friends at Salesforce. Did you know Salesforce isn't just for sales? Using Salesforce as an employee experience platform helps make every employee across your organization more productive thanks to a common mobile first platform for getting work done faster. Find out more at salesforce.com slash employee experience.